Uh, I have one announcement that Sarah asked me to give you before I start, and that is email update. Uh, so we had this we had this Valentine's dance a couple weeks ago. Just first I, again, first servers are like woo. I'm like happy you weren't even there. What's the anyway? Um, and we sold out before we ever got to third service with the tickets. And and they're like, oh, I can't believe it. And, and seriously, if you got our email update, you would have known two weeks ahead of time, and you could have probably bought tickets and reserved tickets that way. So if you want to, uh, with the Connect card in front of you, you can fill it out and go and get on our email update. You can go online at our website and click on that. And each week on Wednesday, you'll get a little thing of what's going on. It's not long. It's usually some rambling by me about something and then some announcements so you can know what all that's going on. So there you go. Don't, don't blame me. You can go online. You can figure it out. You'll be okay. God's still in his heaven. You are, you're still dumb as ever. <laughs> oh, dang it, dang it. I don't have time, but I'll tell you, okay. Before, when we were, when we were practicing this morning, uh, Jason made, made some joke. And I said, oh, that's horrible. And he goes, he goes, are you preaching? And I go, yeah. And he's all, that's not the worst thing you're going to hear this morning. <laughs> so... I didn't mean you're dumb, I just meant that sign up for the email update and you won't have to complain. All right, uh, welcome to Elman if you're new, I'm really sorry for me. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, if you don't own one, we'd love for you to have one, if you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, right now, our sermon notes are not just short notes, they're actually this booklet that our staff put together, and in here you will get short daily devotions, very short daily devotions, so if you've never done one, it'll get you in the habit of spending time with God every day. There's family questions that are color-coded to different age groups, there are gospel community questions for you to ask one another, and so if you don't have one of these, we'd love for you to take one, because essentially your sermon notes are also in this booklet as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and Then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone, but in that, you're, you won't get the full sermon notes. You'll get some announcements. You'll get uh, the gospel statements in the book for this week, the verses that we go through, and some announcements, but you won't get everything. So we encourage you to pick up uh, one of these booklets. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And it says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to stand amazed at what you have done in our lives, how you continue to chase us down and call us into relationship with you, how you rescue and redeem even in the midst of our stupidity. And that as many times as we run from you, as as many times you come and chase and call and bring us back to who you are. We thank you for the good news of your grace. And we ask that we be those who live that out in our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are again in the series called Didn't See That Coming. The good news of what the gospel is, how we can speak it in practical ways. This is week eight. Uh, good news, those words translate as the word gospel. It's the heralding of news that is good in nature. In regard to Christianity, it's what God has done to rescue and save lost people. And so it isn't about God helping you become all that you want to be. It's not giving you everything you want. It's God bringing into our lives what we need to grow and know who he is. It is about forgiveness of sin, restore relationship with him and others again. And we call this didn't see it coming because no one could have thought or imagined the good grace 
grace of God and how He rescues us even today. Uh, God's grace is generous and continuing to seek lost people even as we run away from Him. And so what we have seen so far is this good creation that God makes. You have in this garden men and women, they're naked, eating fruit, which is awesome, and we totally messed that up. But then God comes again in grace and reestablishes relationship, giving the entire earth a brand new start, and we messed that up. So then you see God establish a new covenant again, and mankind made that about themselves, and we messed it up. We then saw God rescue this whole group of people who were in slavery, crying out to God. God shows up, bring these, brings these people out, gives them a mission and an identity and a country and a home of their own. They get to be God's representatives to the world, and they make it all about themselves, and they mess it all up. And if you look at the scriptures, there's really this trajectory in there. That created order, it starts in this garden with God's good gifts, calling his people to live and make a culture that centers upon who he is, to take creation somewhere forward. And then you get to the end, and you have this place at the end of Revelation called the New Jerusalem. It's about the restoration of all that has been lost. Redemptive history begins because God hears the cry of his people. And what you read in Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4 is that, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What you see is that redemptive history begins with this cry. And in the end, that cry is done. God brings full restoration to everything. The gospel is the good news of how God is ending the cry and setting his people free. All that's lost is restored. Reconciled again is God and man and creation. And we are meant to be a community that worships God together. And by doing that, we are people who must understand the good news of the gospel. That God is teaching us and helping us to understand this story. Now, in understanding the gospel and what we talk about today, uh, we need to get to a place where we talk about this word that American culture loves so much called obedience. Right? Yeah. Yeah, we just love that word. It's so great. It's a nasty word in our culture, but in the scriptures, that's a beautiful word. And it's not about fear. It's about love. I think there's two reasons that we obey God. And these are going to go to exactly what we're talking about in the story today. So I got to actually start here. Two reasons we obey God. Number one, obedience to God actually increases our freedom. It increases our freedom. Now, there's two types of freedom in the world today. Freedom from external constraints, like people trying to tell you what to do. And then there's freedom for. Freedom for being the kind of people that God calls us to be. Freedom to live the lives that we feel like we should be living. Free to become the people we were meant to be. Freedom for. Now, the problem is the main way that we think about freedom today is freedom from any external constraints whatsoever. Like, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Um, for one of the messages I wrote all the way back in the book of Genesis, I talked about how my wife and I were in New Hampshire, and she's playing this game called Words with Friends, probably with some of you. Stop if it's like 2 a.m., okay? Please. Um, so we're back there. It's like 2 a.m., which is 11 p.m. our time, and she's playing, and I'm like, stop playing the game. She's like, hush you, you know, and I'm like, ah! And so I try reverse psychology, and I say, Marianne, I command you to play that game. You're not allowed to stop playing that game. And she kept playing the game. 
So I don't know what that means, right? I, I don't know what that means either way. But my, my friend Pam has this little girl, and she used to say, you're not the boss of me, which is kind of funny because her parents actually were the boss of her. But we like to say freedom is freedom from any external constraint whatsoever, the expansion of my personal rights. I know what I want, and so I'm going to get that thing. I'm going to listen to my inner voice. So we feel free to drink as much as we want and whatever we want, to smoke as much as we want or, and whatever we want, to do whatever I want. And then you do, but eventually you find out that it starts to get a hold of you. And it starts to damage your health. And it starts to maybe embarrass your family, hurt your marriage, threaten your work or your job. And if you try to quit, all of a sudden you realize you're not as free as you thought you were. You become a slave to this thing. Because it turns out the freedom that we really need is not this external freedom from all of these things. Our freedom is limited by an internal reality that is broken and marred by this thing called sin. Because eventually someone wants to stop drinking or drinking as much and they realize they can't. They want to live a life where they speak good news into the people's lives around them, but they realize they can't because they're just irritated all the time. They want to work better at their jobs, but they realize they can't because they're all just enslaved to their, their laziness. We'd all like to think that we're unselfish and we give and we love of above and beyond, but when we really look at our lives, if we realize we pour all of ourselves into ourselves all of the time. We are not free, and most of us never saw that coming because we thought that we were free. The freedom we lack is this internal freedom. It's This internal lack of freedom is more dehumanizing and more tragic than external constraints. So how do you get real freedom? Well, when you look at the Didn't See That Coming series and where we've been, you recognize there's actually a moral and a spiritual order, a way things that God designed them, the way that we're designed. We are not the center of the universe. You know, the first commandment is there is a God and he's not you. You're welcome. That's, that's how it works. God created to live, us to live in a relationship and covenant with Him, and freedom comes when we actually live in the way God created us to be. This is why when you look throughout the Scriptures, the biblical writers have these very strong connections between God's law and freedom. Like Psalm 119, verses 44 and 45 says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. That word wide place is translated as Freedom, it's a wide place. These boundaries are really big. I can kind of go and do whatever is out there. He says, for I have sought your precepts. That's why it's a wide place. Uh, James one twenty five says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the word freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is why trusting and following Jesus in all things is really about true freedom. When our desires become our God, it always ends up in slavery. But when we submit all of our desires to him, it always leads to freedom. The freedom that matters most that people need is the freedom that actually comes from obeying God. And the second reason we obey is because God alone is worth obeying. If you believe any authority in your life is out to infringe upon your rights, you're going to find a way to rebel. Like anybody here ever been around a strong-willed child? Anybody here have strong-willed children? <laughs> I love that. Okay, so you guys don't get to see what I see, but th- th- that was really funny. Anyway, uh, uh, th- this is what happens with strong-willed children. You tell them no, and they freak out. Uh, like, when, when they think they're under somebody else's authority they don't want to be under, it is not pretty. My gospel community leader, Donald, and his wife, Laura, pulled their daughter, Faith, out of Chuck E. Cheese one time. And because he's, he's a good dad, he recorded what happened just so we can play it probably at his daughter's wedding someday. Um, but uh, this, is, this is what ensued. Okay, it's better. 
Why? Because she lost, right? <laughs> no! Man door shuts. We're going home. Now, is that what it means to live under the rule and reign of God? Is that how you feel when God says something? No! 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 Is, is that what it is? See, if, if you think that's what it is to live under the rule and the reign of God, you will think that God is a killjoy out to ruin what your life is meant to be. Christopher Hitchens wrote in his book, God is Not Great. He says, if the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would mean living eternally under a divine totalitarian despot. I'd be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse, because at least you can die and get out of North Korea. Is that the God of the Bible? No, not at all. The God who reveals himself is not a totalitarian despot. That's, and Christopher Hitchens didn't see that coming. But in fact, he's so far away from that, you have to read your assumptions into the scriptures to get a God like that. It helps us to understand this word called covenant that we've talked about a couple times here. The gospel is about covenant. Because of archaeology, we know more about ancient covenants than we ever have. Archaeologists have actually found hundreds of covenants between overlords and their vassals in the Hittite text in the 13th and 14th centuries. Now, covenant uh, BC. And covenants, actually, it's a, it's a sign of faithfulness between two parties. It brings two people who maybe not have ever been together before into a place of peace. The covenant is not an imposition of strict rules. It's this idea that brings peace. And the gospel is about God making peace with human beings. No God ever did that in the ancient world. Ancient covenants always had a provision for preserving a copy for the people it was given to and the person who it came from. So you actually had two copies. Both people would keep a copy of the covenant. Now Moses, when he comes down from the hill with the Ten Commandments, right, he's got Two, like you usually see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or history of the world part one, he's got 15 and one falls, and then he's just got 10 left. But that's not how it was. It wasn't five and five, it was 10 and 10, because there's a copy for the Israelites, but who owns the other copy? God. God owns the other copy. And then God takes these and he gives them to the Israelites and says, place these in this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, because this is a place where we will meet together in this place. When, when the Ten Commandments are first given, it says the Israelites stood because they understood because God had covenant to, to be with them. God had covenant to be, I will be your God, you will be my people. God had bound himself to his people in covenant. And they're supposed to keep these copies. Right after the Ten Commandments are written, Israel starts worshiping this golden calf, and Moses drops these, these covenant pieces of stone, and he breaks them into pieces because literally that's what the Israelites just did. They broke the covenant with God. They broke the relationship with him. And he's saying, Israel, you want to see what you just did? This is what you just did. Because God's covenant calls us to be free. Not free from God, but free for him. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, For you were called to freedom. That means freedom is good. And a lot of churches and religious communities today, they end up being places that are restricted and legalistic and really severe. But God made us free. He wants spontaneous worship from our hearts to love who he is. So Paul says you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't use your freedom to infringe on one another. It's important to understand that the gospel has always been calling people to live in the kingdom of God, in freedom and hope here and now today. It's not just a future hope. It's not a past hope. It's a present hope every single day. It means that we live our lives for him. 
And I think if we understand the scriptures and how this connects and God walks through this plan of redemptive history like we're doing through didn't see that coming, then we can understand our role. So in the last three weeks, what we've seen is these Israelites were in captivity in Egypt and they cry out to God to rescue them. And then you see God takes them to a place called Sinai and he gives them an mission and an identity. You will be my people, my image to the world. And they finally get to a country called Israel that is theirs. And what do they do the first thing? They're like, God, we don't want you to be our king. We want a human king. And so God says, fine. And he gives them a human king. So they finally have a human king. Will they finally live as God's chosen people in the world? Will they live as this blessing, as his image bearers? Will they live in obedience and love towards him? No. No, they won't. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10. I'm going to give you the good and the bad here, okay? I'm going to start with the good. Start with the good. It's always nice to start with the good news, right? Some says you want good or bad news. You see, I'll take the good first. All right. So here, a foreign queen shows up to Israel that does not know God, and she will praise God. This is what the Israelites are meant to be about in the world. These once slaves are now a world-famous power, and a queen who could have been from an area of modern Yemen, uh, would have been like an Arab queen, comes and praises the God of Israel. First Kings 10, uh, 6 through 9, this is what she says. The report was true that I had heard it in my own land of your words and your wisdom. This is spoken to Solomon. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on a throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So what does she see when she comes to Jerusalem? She sees Solomon and his wisdom and his stuff and the temple and all this. She's overawed at the slave people becoming so rich and powerful. But she lands her praise centered at the feet of their God who values justice and righteousness. This is a radical brick of how people saw gods during that day. Like you take Pharaoh, he's the norm. Pharaoh says, I am God on the planet. The gods have given me power. I am the ruler. I'll rule over you. Minions, that's what it's like. This queen learns about this people who serve a different God who really cares about people. And what impresses her most is this God values justice and righteousness. And if this is kind of where the story kind of landed and ended, it'd be great. You know, they're living out the gospel in the world. They're being as image bearers. But unfortunately, you're, or more fortunately, your Bible is heavier than that. It's got more pages than that. But if this is all you had, you think that's the point of the story. Sin, fall, God comes and restores and promises a redeemer. More messing up. God comes again and rescues again. More running. And they end up in slavery in Egypt. And God hears the cry and brings them out of oppression. And God acts again. They get their own country. Hollywood ending. Happily ever after. The world's going to learn the wisdom of God. Credits roll. But that's not what happened. Because we're just like the Israelites. People are drawn to sin like a moth is to flame. So Solomon becomes king. This is, this is after King Saul we talked about last week. Then David becomes king and Solomon is David's son. All these kings were supposed to execute justice and righteousness. That's how a human king was supposed to reign. Think back a couple weeks ago in Egypt. They're slaves to world power, Pharaoh and his army. God brings these people to himself. God makes a covenant with them and says, you will be my message to the world. Takes to this place called Sinai and says that you're my chosen possession. You are my priest. You're my message. They finally take up their promise. They're in their country. They have an inheritance. Or do they? Because of sin in their lives, God is going to allow this kingdom to be divided apart. Let me read you a few verses. Uh, flip over to 1 Kings 9. So you're still there. Just look to the left a little bit. 1 Kings 9, verse 15. 
And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo. The Milo is like a fortified rampart for military things. The wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Now, forced labor. What's another word for forced labor? Slave. Exactly. In Egypt... The Israelites are slaves. They're slaves. The crowd to God, he saves them, he frees them, he gives them a mission and an identity to hear that same cry, to work in the world for the oppressed and the marginalized. They get their own country and you find them in Jerusalem and they are building things on the back of slaves. The oppressed have become the oppressors. The Israelites are this people who were told, I brought you out, I rescued you by my grace. Have a Passover and a feast to remember all that I have done for you. And don't forget, whatever you do, don't forget. And what you find out is that they forgot. And they're a lot like us. God rescues and God redeems and God saves us and gives us so much grace. And so often we forget, especially when we get irritated at somebody else in our lives. We're like, how dare they do that to me? Like, we're the God of the universe. We forget so often, and we're just like the Israelites. The Israelites forget, and they conscripted slaves. The same thing God's people once needed to rescue from, they now do. They become part of a system that perpetrates the same acts once perpetrated on them, which means they can no longer hear the cry. In Jerusalem, they are causing the cry of the oppressed. Now, stay in 1 Kings, but I'm going to read something I read to you last week. This is Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. God says, when you get a human king, don't let certain things happen. So he says this, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or Cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You might think, well, I guess it's not so bad. A lot of that stuff wasn't in there. Well, go 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. I'm going to read this to you out of the NIV. It says this, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. What? He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. At some point, you got to say, i got enough horses, but apparently not, okay? Which he kept in chariot cities. These are references to Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And also with him in Jerusalem, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from where? Egypt. Egypt. And from Q, the royal merchants purchased them from Q. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. If you've ever seen like with the movie The Ten Commandments and the Israelites are running from the Egyptians as they chase them down, what's chasing them down? Chariots and horses. Chariots and horses, exactly. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. What that says is Solomon also became an arms dealer. Solomon is trading the weapons of his day. Like a chariot is like a 1000 BC tank. Uh, go further, First Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. The Hebrew says this really funny. It says, it says Solomon, he loved women, foreign ones, many ones, and daughter of Pharaoh. Sounds like a SNL sketch a little bit, but anyway. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and you think one who thinks she's a princess is tough. 700, right? And 300 concubines for harvesting wheat. 
No, nobody gets that? Concubine's like a girlfriend on the side. It's not for harvesting wheat. Anyway. And his wives turned his heart, turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. This is a reference to Solomon being the son of David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Solonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And abomination is, I don't think, harsh enough. Uh, this God has said that when you're firstborn child, you must sacrifice to me. So Solomon's heart here is very dark. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, that's the word obey, as his father David had done. This is another reference to the fact that he is a son of David, which we will talk about next week. This is all significant. Chapter 9 deals with Solomon accumulating slaves. Chapter 10, he's getting horses from Egypt. Chapter 11, he's accumulating wives. You have all these things. You have, you have the forced labor and the horses and the wives. It's important because these people were rescued from slavery and oppression and brought to Sinai. We looked a few weeks ago how Egypt in the scriptures becomes this metaphor for what we are all born into, this thing called sin. And we have this taskmaster over us named Pharaoh called sin. And yet we cry out to God and God rescues and God redeems us from our sin. We looked at how God longs to bring people out of their sin, how he longs to bring a whole people out of systemic sin, out of the cultures in which they are in. And yet in chapter 9, this guy has slaves. They are building the temple of God with slaves. Do you see something wrong with that? Yeah, just a little bit. Chapter 10, he's accumulating horses. Chapter 11, he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And what it shows you is it's not just the culture. It's actually in Solomon's heart itself. It's in his heart. It's the entire country and Solomon who have gone off the rails. Let me ask you a question. Do you think our culture has gotten into our hearts? Of course it has. In a lot of ways that we don't see coming. And so we act certain ways to certain things that happen in our world simply because we live in an American culture. We don't necessarily think of the gospel and the good news first. Many times we think culturally first. And that's tough because in doing that, we're going to end up a lot like Solomon. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king. That's, he's a whiny little brat is, is what he is. And the northern tribes will split from the southern tribes. Civil war will ensue, strife ensues because no one is seeking recon- reconciliation. Everyone is seeking their own personal self-centered worlds. And so what happens is you have these northern kingdoms and eventually they will have 19 kings and one queen before they are conquered by a foreign power that comes in and hauls them off once again as slaves. Not one of those 20 rulers worship God. Not one of them. In the southern kingdom, they'll have 20 kings. Only eight come to a place where they worship God. And eventually they will be hauled off into captivity by the Babylonians. They have this broken dynasty. And for them at that point, they probably think that's really bad news. But I think for also looking back at this, this is good news. Because in these places, in captivity, God is going to work on their hearts again. And they're going to start to remember. They will write songs about how they wept over what God had given them and what God longs to restore in them. Prophets will come and proclaim what God is going to do. They will proclaim the gospel, the good news of how God's going to redeem and restore and bring back again. And they start to understand this better in the midst of their captivity. God says to his people, I am giving you a sacred mission and a purpose. God says to us, I am giving you a sacred mission and a purpose. He told his people, you're meant to hear the cry of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the exile and the forgotten and the poor. This is how the world knows who God is by how his people live. We are supposed to be those who live that out today. God says to his people, when you make it to the promised land, do not become the type of people you were liberated 
from. And again, the text says in Jerusalem, you know, he's amassing wise, military might, storing up gold and silver, trading arms. The country is condoning slavery. In 1 Kings 10, 14, uh, see if the writer knows what he's talking about here because, you know, Moses says, don't let the king acquire too much gold. 1 Kings 10, 14 says, the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now, numbers are very important to a Jewish mindset. So do you think that there's something more going on here? It's not too subtle. Oh, we weighed it. And by the way, it's the number of the beast. <laughs> right? Before Iron Maiden never got a hold of it. You know, it's, it's, that, that's what it is. Solomon is someone who is working against what God is calling him to be for. How often do we do the exact same thing? Do we end up in a place where our society and culture accepts something as just being so right that we're like, oh, yeah, it must be right because our society says it is? No. Guys, there are many things in our culture that we must stand against. And we must stand for what God has called us to be. I mean, what you see about Solomon is that I'm starting to write the book of Ecclesiastes for next year. And what you see, what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes, is an old guy looking back at his life. And And he lives this way that he has freedom from external constraints. He does all of these crazy things in his life. And yet at the end, he looks back and he realizes that that freedom from external constraints really made him a slave. And the point of the book comes down to, without God, everything becomes meaningless because we're not really free. And as I look over these notes and stuff, what I was doing, I thought a lot of these weeks felt like a bummer <laughs> because you see just, just the trajectory of mankind. We keep just going down and down and down. But this is good news of what God is doing because God is the one who hasn't stopped. God is the one who continues to bring his promises to fruition. That we need to understand that we are just like the Israelites. We cry out to God from things in our lives that oppress us and God sets us free. And for some reason, we get comfortable and we forget. We forget what God has done. The beauty of the truth of the gospel is that God, even through everything, hasn't stopped moving. He hasn't stopped working. He hasn't stopped bringing about his ultimate purposes for the people Israel and also for us today. For Israel, Jesus is still coming. For us, Jesus actually came. When Jesus comes, they call him the son of David because Jesus is the only one worthy to sit on the throne as king. Why? Because he himself is God. And he is the only good king. We keep subjecting ourselves to our own egos, thinking we know how to work and do everything better than God. But when we burn it all down, Jesus still comes and rescues. That's the good news of the gospel. Let me give you your gospel statement for this week. This is it. The gospel is the good news that even though we have destroyed our lives with our own selfishness, Jesus has come not just to redeem, but to restore us to be those who live in his kingdom where he rules and reigns forever. The gospel is the good news that even though we have destroyed our lives with our own selfishness, Jesus has come not just to redeem, but to restore us to be those who live in his kingdom where he rules and reigns forever. That is not to say, yeah, my neighbor's going to be sorry for not believing in Jesus. What that means, it's to remind us that we are just like our neighbors. And we are to live out the good news of the gospel in their lives. Even if they don't believe, the gospel should still be good news for them because we are living out the good news. Jesus' grace is what has saved us. And so we live out that grace. You know, you now get the privilege of not ending up like Solomon. We are people who get to return to the good news of our salvation, proclaiming freedom to those held in bondage. Jesus constantly reminds us that our hearts without him become just like Israel, divided and lost. But he has come to make us whole again. Freedom in our lives is when we are tethered to him. That's the gospel, that we are free to actually be his. 
Uh, in the book Redemption, they liken it to uh, someone with a kite. Like if you let go of a string on a kite, what does the kite do? In it, right? Because that's not freedom for, the, for a kite. Freedom is when the person is holding the string on the kite. It's actually tethered. Our freedom comes when we're tethered to Christ. We get to soar and be who he calls us to be because we're actually tethered to our source of life. And this is what Jesus came to restore. It's what he constantly keeps doing for the people in Israel. This is why we talk about communion every single week. It's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder to what he continues to do today. Rescue and redeem and restore. All that separated us from God and each other was taken care of by Jesus at the cross. God has called us to live in freedom and hope and new life again. This is what we remember at the place of communion, that God is true and good to his promises that he has made. I will rescue. I will redeem. I will restore. Trust in me. Lay your life at my feet. Surrender all that you are to me. And live a life of true freedom and true grace. That's what we remember at communion. The band's going to come up. There's going to be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today, maybe where you have given your life to something, and it is overtaking you, and you don't know what to do about that, they'd love to pray with you about that. Well, if you have any prayer requests in your life, they'd love to pray with you about it. But especially if you're in a place like that today, like, like you're in bondage, you, maybe you heard God's call in your life, and you surrendered your life, but all of a sudden your life has now kind of become about you. You cease to remember the good things that God is doing. And so I would invite you, if that's you, to pray with them this morning. And remember that our God is gracious and good. There's offering boxes next to all the doors. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. Just like communion is a response, we don't pass it. You actually, as God works in your heart, you go and you take communion because he's working in you. Giving's the same way. There's food outside. We put food outside so you guys would grab some to eat, meet one another, talk to one another, and then maybe this week get together with other people and start to ask and talk through some of those questions in the notes so that we would be a people who learn how to speak the gospel into each other's lives in real and practical ways. That we are a people who needed rescue and redemption. It's not just that everybody else needs Jesus, although that would be great, but we need Jesus too. And so we live in a way that bears his image to this world because Jesus is the one who has rescued and saved us. So we live that out so the world would know we can become his image bearers and live so everyone would come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is because he is the one who rescues and saves. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that you would remind us as a people what it means to fully trust and honor you. So often, God, if we are completely honest about our lives, we are a people who forget. Sometimes it seems like we could be a people who spend you know, an hour and 15 minutes in a in a church service with other people around us, and then an hour after that, we can be irritable and angry and yelling at people who don't deserve it and thinking that we're the center of the universe because we are so easily led astray and consumed by our own thoughts. And I ask that you would teach us to remember what you have done in your grace and in your goodness, to rescue and save us. That when we feel like we want to respond in a certain way that isn't going to honor you, we would stop and remember what you've done to rescue us. I ask that you give us the ability to look at the things in our lives that has its hooks in us, that has enslaved us, these things that we thought we were so free 
that we could be a part of, and yet it has actually gotten a hold of us and enslaved us. Have us have the guts and the courage to look at those things and honestly speak what they are and then lay them at your feet so that we would be free for you. That we would and could live lives that honor you in all things. That we'd be a people who understand that our brokenness has been restored in who you are. But also, day by day, our pride does need to be broken as well. And when you do that, it's a sweet brokenness that you bring to us. Have us live in humility, trusting you for all things. Because the good news is that you have rescued and saved us and brought us into your kingdom. And now you send us to be the message. Teach us to live out that message by being your people in this world. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.